0: All right, sit back, relax. It's time for another Laneway Talks. Welcome back, everybody, to Laneway Talks with Rob and Vince, or Vince and Rob. How are you, Rob? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Well, uh, we've got a few topics here to go over, some of the things that you've mentioned to me, some of the topics that we mentioned last week, Vince's tips for keeping up with today's technology. There you go. Yeah, well, um, this is such a broad area, and what we mean to everybody... I wouldn't think we should do anything to do with sound recording. Let's do technology with social media. Yeah? What do you think? Okay. Because, you know, recording is a whole different session on its own. Well, I don't know that we should even talk about heritage artists in that. You know, just basically keeping up with technology, social media technology in general. So what we've got, what we work with is we work with YouTube. We work with Meta, of course, and then that gets to Instagram. LinkedIn, TikTok, and then you've got Threads, and you've got Shorts in YouTube. Also, with YouTube, what you've what you've got to do is you you need to revolve around everything around your video. But remember, YouTube has become a what they call community now, and uh, you you have a community post that you can do, and we try and do one of those every day, yep. and that's essentially, I suppose, to combat up against Facebook because that's basically what it is. So we, we discuss our albums. It, now, a lot of these things are difficult to do, Rob, because if you're one artist, you have to think about, well, what will I come up with to, you know, to put up and discuss? It's a lot easier for lame-way music because we have 100 artists, so therefore, you know, I'm doing a series on albums, which will last the whole year, quite frankly, and, okay. you know, you do an album each day, so I've just finished with X and I'm about to start with Steve Lucas with his more solo material. You know, and, oh, there's, good. and there's a lot of differences there too. When you get someone like uh, Steve Lucas, he's with X where he's screaming and it's at punk rock. And then you've got his personal solo material, which he, I suppose, does things like um, The Beatles and all that kind of stuff, that flavour. So this is a guy that has a Jekyll and Hyde kind of musical career in what he Delivers So well, when we get there, you know, what what's also needed now is that every time that you're doing a, uh, let's call it a 16 by 9 video, so your widescreen video that you put up and make, you need yep. to make a, a vertical video. And you can't really just convert it to a vertical because if you, Rob, are not singing in the middle of the screen, we're going to lose you throughout the video. So there's going to be nothing, sure. nothing there. You do have to think about all of those things. So, and that's quite complicated because you, you know, you you've really got to get into video editing, and and do that. And what you you can move the screen across and and whatever, but it takes time, you know. And then you've got a top and tail, you know, black screens and audio at the top and the tail. So there's that part of it with YouTube. So then you've got YouTube Shorts which are their vertical shorts to me are competition with Instagram. You do get paid for them also, so it's well worth doing it if you get some traction. You're doing nothing more than 30 seconds worth maximum, and that is considered a short. So so we've already covered quite a few things that you're doing just in YouTube. Uh, so let, let's just recap on that. So you've got your original video that you're making, let's call it widescreen, wide 16 by 9 then you're doing a you know a vertical video you're doing a 30 second vertical for shorts you're doing community posts and then you've got everything else in there if you're going to um collect play or put things together as playlists and then there's the in the back end it's whether you're going to monetize that uh, and you probably you know in the old days you used to have to have more than a thousand subscribers but they've relinquished that and you don't need it but you do need to be getting you know I would suggest you need to be getting 10,000 10, streams a day to start making some wow. decent money from it. But, you you know, that's that's achievable.
1: So just on that note, I mean, what sort of act get that many streams? What sort of artists? What sort of people?
0: Well, we as a label get 20,000, 20,000, 25,000 a day.
1: But that's across everyone. Yeah, probably.
0: yeah, that's right. But we, you remember, when you've got your YouTube channel... It doesn't just have to be about you, Rob. So it doesn't need to be all videos about, oh, it's my latest video, but I don't have another video or another song coming out for six weeks or two months or three months. So it can be, you know, you can make videos on quite a few different things or you can concentrate between your original releases and shorts. And so you're doing shorts every day to keep the momentum going in your YouTube and keep the interest going from your subscribers. Of course... Everything revolves around being a subscriber, so you're trying to get people to subscribe because you know it is a business at the end of the day for YouTube and for you also because you want to make money out of it. So yeah, it's pushing subscriptions all the time. You know, you've got to be very careful with that we don't we don't push it that hard. I think uh, Dan, my other partner, business partner, he does a lot of the back end on YouTube. So you can see how naive I am. I don't actually see all that stuff because my my job is more the videos and delivery and and quality and A&Ring it. He has a subscribe button at the end of the video that comes up and that's about all that we do. We don't discuss it or we don't push it throughout the whole video. Now, that's a different thing for you and me here. We want people to subscribe uh, and we want people to, you know, obviously put us on their weekly listen list because... We're conducting a business here like anything else. Uh, we we would love to get a, a million streams a week, and that and that is you know earning a living on that for both of us. So there's the intricacies and the back end of YouTube. You know the monetization and how you monetize it and how you set it up and what tags you put in there. And uh, it is there's a lot there. If you're doing it properly, you can do it easy and just go yeah 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 yeah. Or you can do it properly and then you can look at your analytics in there and they actually mean something to you. So that's YouTube. Then we go to Facebook. The one commonality, I've, well, actually, no, two, would be shorts and threads with yep. with Meta, but also the, the ability for now Facebook uh, encouraging you to put videos up, and I mean the whole video, and they're monetizing that, okay? So you, you can monetize it. Is that a new thing? Or? Yes, it is. And they're combating up against YouTube. So they're you know going back, going, well, okay. we want videos too. Which makes sense when you think about it because why should Facebook not have videos? I don't see any reason why they shouldn't have videos on there. So we've started doing it. We probably don't do it every day. and We probably should. Um, but we are doing it every couple of days and we'll put a whole video up. Um, the other, oh, look, there is a third one there is that between the two, is that Mm -hmm. similarity is live videos. When you go live on Facebook and on YouTube, both platforms will open up the floodgates to you, who own it, uh, to an audience. So because they want people to go live, that's one of their big things, right? Now, now, presume it's because, um, you know, it gets people in there straight away and it's... It's new. It's different because it's something you know okay. happening at that point. Uh, there's got to be bigger reasons in there, but they will open up your audience at a much greater rate when you therefore do a live video. So, two weeks ago, I went to see. We have a band called um, Order of Decay, which goes back to Adelaide in the late '80s. And
1: when Kelly,
0: what time was that? Uh, late '80s and Kelly Houston who used to run his label, punk label, he was in Order of Decay. So yep. he has a new band. He was in another band called Glenn and the Peanut Butter Men, which are full-on punks with the mohegan haircuts and all that kind of stuff. And then, the Mohawk. Yeah, Mohawk, right? Uh, but big, yep. you know, they're really in full colour and all that kind of stuff. He's now just formed a new band called Brando Rising. So I got invited to go down and have a look. At the Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar, which is a great bar in town here, and um, I, I recorded it live. You know, within two days, it had two thousand views, and it's up to three and a half, four thousand views now. Sure. Once again, so we got we got the advantage of we went live, so that's really good for our Facebook cha- um, I call it channel or page, and then we we get the advantage that. You, uh, Facebook like it that much, they'll push it more than they would any of your other posts and we're up to like 4,000 views. Now, I could promote that and I reckon I could get them 100,000 views but I'll, I'm not prepared to do that yet with that because it was only a gig and the album's not out to next year and I don't even know if we're getting it but okay. you know, but the, the principles are there. So, But once you go to Facebook, then it's about, it used to be about you could only do three posts a day maximum I don't believe that's the case anymore. And now they've started the Meta Business Suite, which allows you to go in and do your post and automatically uh, contour it or set it up for Instagram also and get it out to Instagram at the same time. Now, you used to be able to do it at one stage, but this has made it much simpler. So, but it is complicated when you go into the Meta Business Suite. It isn't. It's, there's a lot of information there. I was doing doing some campaigns, I, we, and we do a lot of trials, Rob, so we know how to run cam- okay. campaigns and proper campaigns, but yep. these platforms are coming out with boost campaigns where they say, look, just press the boost and we'll do it automatically for you and whatever. We don't believe it, but, you know, with AI and all this kind of stuff, which is, we I'm going to talk about that shortly, but, you know, you'd think that it might be a bit better, AI is causing really a lot of havoc so you know you go in there and we did that and we got really bad results so what we do and you you might have seen this before we've done it for virgin soldiers we'll create what's called a smart card and a smart card is just a page a little web page which has different platforms on it that you can click on to listen to the track and you can also put youtube in there to watch the video so that's what we've got, a smart card. So we're trying to get people to click on that and then to watch the video. Because
1: so, that comes up in YouTube already, doesn't it? With, I've noticed that with working soldiers, just with
0: it's, our so, content. Hold on, what are you saying? I don't understand that. Well,
1: that comes up when you go in to watch, say, a soldiers clip. Yeah. Well, and then it was, there'll be a um, like a line of other
0: clips. No, 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 no. This is an actual web page. It's created. We do it called fanlink.to forward slash. In in your case, it would be forward slash Virgin Soldiers. So it creates a landing web page. Okay. So you can put it in and it becomes the button on your ad. And so if they click on the button to listen to or learn more, it then goes to that web page which says click on Deezer, Spotify, Apple, or YouTube to listen to the song. To listen to the song, Jim. All right. So that's what a smart card is. It's it's fairly difficult. We got really bad results on this. So we, as I said, tested it for the last week, week and a half. And we were just okay. blow, blowing money into the wind because it wasn't... I think we got a 1,000 streams on YouTube, so there was no more streams happening there. And I looked at the audio, and we weren't getting any more streams on Spotify, which is, remember, here, 70%. It's not so much overseas. Okay. And so, you know, you got... Uh, you, you, but we use Spotify because it you know represents seventy percent of the market here, but the results weren't there, so we we had to we had to terminate that straight away and we tried it with another act and we got the same results it wasn't giving us the results so okay. what it tells you straight away their automated boosting is absolute rubbish, so that means you've got to drive it back to a very complicated campaign setup it's really complicated and when I say that Rob. It takes time. You have to think. I can't be disturbed when I'm doing them for about yep. an hour, an hour and a half. And you've got to go through a lot of pages and a lot of detail to set them up. Now, if we therefore go back and then, and then we've got uh, threads, of course, which again are 30-second videos. We've got reels in in Meta, which again are up to 30 seconds. So uh, we, we've got Instagram and we've got TikTok. We've started doing TikTok again and it's working. Okay. When you look at all, when you look at all of that, I mean, how would an artist, especially a heritage artist, but an artist, how do they get across all that? Now, a really well organized bunch of guys or girls would, um, or them, would, be, you know, absolutely sort themselves out and rob your job is, I don't know, Facebook, Vince, your job's YouTube, um, yep. someone else's job, some something else, and you've got to be on that every day. So, okay, of course I can do posts on them down at the gardens and having a picnic or I could be in town or whatever. It doesn't have to be always music, but you need to be posting. So tips for keeping up with today's technology is that not only do you need to be doing it each day, those platforms which we're doing those campaigns on are changing mm-hmm. at a rate of knots. So I come in one day and I go, where did that page go? And they've changed it and they don't tell you. And what they do also is they trial you. So if they've put in something new into Meta in the back end, not everybody's getting it. They will pick out people that are doing more campaigns than others and give them the beta to test, and other people aren't getting it. So it's as as complicated as that because then you can't ask people because they've got a different screen in front of them. And I've had this happen quite a lot of times. So it's a very complicated area... It takes a lot of effort, uh, and I think, you know, I mean, what do you think from a perspective of, you know, having your PhD and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, did any of this come up, or was this not a topic within
1: that? Um, I mean, not really my research. I mean, it's an area of fascination for me, sure, but um, I'm still, you know, my area of research is or pretty much previous, but most of the artists that I've spoken to are suffer from the same, um, I don't know. They're not really fears, but you just—it's so time-consuming having that. Because I mean, you have mentioned here YouTube, Facebook, Meta oh, Business, which is lot. Instagram and Facebook, Smart Card, TikTok, automated boosting, and TikTok. I mean, there's six points that you've just mentioned um, that essentially even I have to go and research a lot of those because I've been, I don't spend all day on social media or uh, even a couple of hours a day doing that is a big ask for you know people are busy and. Have to prioritise how to make a living too, I suppose. But
0: well, we and this go, can be
1: all part of it. But
0: go back to your seminar that you discussed last week, where it was discussed about how we have to educate the more absolutely yeah. heritage artist. These yep. are the kinds of things that we need to educate them in, because I think you brought up here learning steps for heritage musicians. Yes, and, of course. And yeah. You know, I mean, it is heavy going. I don't find many that are prepared to do it. I really don't. Very yeah. few are prepared to do it. They just passed it. And they don't want to waste the time doing it. But there are a few that will do it. Mike, Mike Rudd, for example, he does his posts, on a semi-regular posts. Yeah, he's, he's really good at it. You you know? Know? So I've he, it. Yeah, so he's doing it. Yeah. And it and it's a way of keeping up. You know, I mean, it's hard to get across to them too. It's a way of keeping your fans up to date with what you're up to as a musician. yeah. yeah. Because yeah, you know, in the old days, we'd go down and buy Duke magazine, and that's how we kept up. Well, today, it's through your Facebook posts or a few other different type of posts. So yes, of I course. I think it's, uh, and that's probably why I brought up last week too that I think it's near impossible to educate. You know, and you go, oh, well, we need to educate these heritage artists or more mature artists. Totally different for the younger artist and the middle aged artist, but the older ones. I just can't see it ever happening. I mean, to stand up somewhere and say, that's what we need to do, it's farcical. It's just, it's too heavy going. That's my opinion anyway.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a its a dilemma, really, in a certain way for heritage acts. Um, well,
0: well, it's one thing to create the music, isn't it? And then get the next step going.
1: Well, it cuts into your creative passion. I think it's a completely different way of doing things as well. Um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I there's a couple of things I've been reading and researching this week. I mean, the other, what I I think I mentioned to you about reading Richard Clapton's book, you know, The Best Years of Our Lives, you know, in the last last paragraph, the last chapter of that book is really addressing the substance of what music is like now compared to what it was like previously, you know. Um, And then, you know, for me and a lot of artists, there's just this feeling that, creativity creativity's just been completely sucked out of everything that we do through trying to deal with technology and just keep up with the nuts and bolts of you know staying valid as a you know musician and creative um, player these days. It's it's a very difficult thing to keep up with, and it does it sucks the creativity out of it. I
0: think. One funny thing I was watching the Andy Durant Memorial Concert, and uh, the, I saw the the, um, the song that Richard Clapton did in there, and I remember the story. Uh, I think Mal Eastick might have told me the story, and um, that they, you know, tried to get him. He wouldn't come out of his hotel room because um, he was totally okay. paranoid at the time. Then it was just hard enough getting him to the gig and to actually play the song. But when you listen to him playing, what a what an artist, eh?
1: I completely agree. I think you know, Richard Clapton's one of the greatest Australian artists you know that we've had. But you know, he started in an era. Um, Can I read something that he wrote in his book? Is that allowable? Yeah, Yeah, because he goes, here it's from page 318 of his book, The Best Years of It's I reckon that way back in the day, the late 60s, the conservatives eyed off the uh, anarchistic young rockers with utter contempt and fear. But the most successful bands of the day slowly moved out of the garage and eventually ended up filling stadiums. At this point, the corporations noticed the music industry growing exponentially into a business worth billions. I believe that corporations then became determined to grab a piece of this action for themselves. And Richard says, by the time I entered the music industry, record companies were already noticeably influenced by their accountants. You can see the era that came through when it was basically unchallenged, and people were creating wonderful new music. And Zappa talks about the same thing. I mean, I was listening to Dweezil Zappa's podcast yesterday, and he said that Frank Zappa fulfilled his record contract with Warner's and went in and said you've signed me for I don't know how many albums it is but say five albums and he goes here they are there's the five albums done, thanks very much and they went no you can't do that and he said well I've done it, he said well no you can't, you're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to finish your contract within, you know, six months or whatever it was. And so they took him to court and he won. And then from that point on, I mean, that's being creative and going, getting the job done and having control over your work, mm. which is what I think Richard's talking about there. But then the corporations went, hang on, we're in a good thing here, so we'll take over the power of it. Mm. And that's when the creativity – and that was, you know, we're talking early 70s, mid-70s Well, well I mean, I, for I
0: think, me. I think that, you know, if you go back to what you just said that the accountants took over back then, well – It was far worse back then than it is now to structure a deal. I know Australian acts were on 3.5% of wholesale, not retail, retail, wholesale. And wholesale is a completely subjective figure when you come to music because it's what that record company makes it by sneaking in all kinds of things, charges into, or, you know, discounts. So... You know, 3.5% back in the late 60s, early 70s, 71, 72 and 73 it starts to delineate a bit and it gets a bit more professional. Is just horrendous. I mean, how you could ever, as an artist, earn a living? It would have been by playing live, but you were going to make nothing from selling your records. You just couldn't, not at 3.5%. Now, then it went to... We used to then later in the 80s, would do deals at 12% of wholesale or 18%, but they'd okay. be on a three- to five-year album deal. Again, you're locked in for the rest of your career, really, unless you become yeah. a prince or someone. Uh, so once again, you're right. I think they took over as a business and they and they you know chew artists up and spit them out. There's no doubt about it. And it's only the few that survive, and then the ones that do survive. We're only discussing this last night at a party. Um, where there's a lot of musos, and um, uh, yeah, you know, we were talking about how you just get chewed up and spat out, and you can you just become crazy anyway. If you do make it to the top, you're a nutcase because you you have <laughs> to cool. because you've got to try and handle it all, and there's so much going on. You know, I I was watching yesterday. Um, um, uh, a show Van Halen show from like I don't know 1986 maybe with Sammy Hagar singing and okay and was yep. looking at it, Live it was, Without a Net it might have been that or was it another one where they recorded... I thought, like, the happy pants on well they yeah he had the happy pants on yeah yeah that's
1: Live Without a Net yeah
0: because he did two they did two shows and then they interwined it into one video yeah and um, you know you, you know I was watching that and they were just so good and then I thought, no. they didn't talk in the end, did they? Eddie Van Halen and Sammy Hager. Um,
1: I, don't,
0: I don't know if they I, did. I, I, did I, I don't think they were friends in the end because Eddie had gone nuts. So getting to, getting to the top and then being able to stay at the top and then being able to deal with it all, Sammy Hager yeah. must be one of the, in, you know, because he's gone through rehab and everything, and he must be one of the lucky ones. And there's a few lucky ones that keep it together. You know, he's in his 70s. Uh, but a lot of them, it's just so difficult. So it's it's a um, a churn and burn really and it's a, really when I say to people it's a real tough industry that's why I say it's a tough industry because yeah. to survive in this business you have to be politically savvy and you've got to be like a rat in a shit house, you know darting around to try and protect yourself and stay relevant. Because that's the other the, the other fact of all this is staying relevant. So how many bands do you know, Rob? And surely you would have covered this because you covered pub rock. How many bands sound as good today as they did the day they recorded? I'll use Buster Brown for one. I think they sound just as good today as they did back in the day. Right? Okay. But then there's others where it's just completely dated, you know. Especially the glam or the you know synth.
1: Yeah, I mean, that. I I kind of look at the Angels. I think the Doc years of the Angels as much as towards the end of Doc being in the Angels was difficult from what I also what I've read from Bobby Yates' book, um, I don't think you can match the power that they had in that era, the Doc era of the Angels. You know, the band was just mm. phenomenal. Mm. Um, and I know the Brewster Brothers have got, you know, worked really, really hard keeping all that together. Um, but I still don't think it's... For me, when I listen to the albums and even the, the later albums, which are quite a few... It just it doesn't really seem like the same thing. Um,
0: well, we, we, I mean, did, I, I, we did the Howling album uh, when I got to Mushroom. Yeah. I think it was later that year uh, we released Howling and, you know, I, we just couldn't believe the, the success that we had. I mean, every song, I think we might have ended up having five singles of it and they were all crackers, but the whole album was a, um, a fantastic yeah. album. I mean, it was just, oh, mate, I how does a band go from being really good to just phenomenal? And that was it. Their howling, I thought, brought them to another stratosphere.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I played with them back in the 80s. We opened for them at a couple of shows, and Mm. I saw them quite a few times.
0: Mm. And they were were just
1: a force to be reckoned with, you know, and they were true pub rock. I mean, ACDC sort of left in Australia and handed them the baton and went, you guys, it's all yours. You know, I mean, there was a conversation between Angus and... I think that there's something to that effect where, you know, um, we've left Australia open, you guys just take over. And they did, you know, and I don't think there's really been, other than Midnight Oil, um, a band that's matched that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Chisel. Um,
0: I mean, has the same it, sort of... Yeah, look, I think you, they, within pub rock, they definitely owned it. But that was a to their detriment too, uh, Rob, because they weren't able to go to the next level. So they weren't a band that could do Rod Laver Arena with 10,000 people. Yeah I, well, yeah, I don't know whether I'd agree with you there. I, I mean, well, they, did, at, they didn't do those shows. I mean, Yeah, I, but I, look at Narara, you know. Like, well, yeah, OK, but that's a festival. That's a festival. You can't put a festival in. So you've got to look at, say, Jimmy, who can do a Rod Laver or do the old entertainment centre. Same for Ivor Davies and Icehouse. For some reason the Angels could never move up to that bigger level. I don't know why. I mean, they just couldn't do it. Anyway, It was a,
1: you know, a different era. Could have I been. been. Yeah. A, a different different types of bands. you know, like There's, there's stadium bands and there's pub bands, I suppose. But would, but
0: would you see Cold Chisel as anything but a pub rock band?
1: Well, they were. Um, I, I thought know. they
0: were quintessential, a pub rock band. You know, But I, I mean, I saw them here
1: when which wasn't actually playing with them. Yeah. Uh, they had Ray Arnott playing oh, yeah. with them, and oh, yeah. it just didn't have the fire, mm. you know, and they changed players. I mean, there's vital elements to bands, and I think it happened, you know, you were talking about Van Halen before, I really think that um, nothing really matched. I mean, no detriment to Sammy Hagar, but, you know, the the Roth era of Van Halen is just unstoppable. Mm. Um, it might not be as popular or didn't sell as many records, but I don't really think that's the issue. It's just, you know, there was a certain symbiote unit that worked, for that band, and then it was for the Angels, with Doc and I think it was for Chisel with Steve Prestwich. And mm. um, there's just that combination of elements you can't substitute something in there. Well,
0: let's move um, on to you know what's your book really about? Now, what's which uh, what's, book? You, well, you you wrote it, didn't you? You said what's my book really about? So, what's your book about?
1: You well, you mentioned last week you wanted to talk about my
0: tutor book. Yeah, let's start with that. Uh,
1: what I was doing, I was teaching in school for, I don't know, 15 years, uh, secondary school, hmm. and I was lugging a big pile of books each week to take like a couple of pages out of syncopation, a couple of pages out of stick control, you know, rhythm section drumming by Frank Corniola. so essentially what I did was went back to when I first learnt and had a look at the fundamental structure of tutor books. You know, like a music book that you learn from. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and the drum one was, the first one I had was Gene Krupa's book, which from, was from 1935.
0: Yeah, yes, you um, know I have that book. I have that Yeah,
1: book. drum method. I'm, and I went, what's unique about this book and what does it share? So I wanted to analyze that and I did it in my study when I was doing my undergraduate study at University in Music Education. Um, I pulled out 14 key elements. That's what I call them in Krupa's book, when I listed them all, I went every section of the book has a key element and then it moves on to the next one. So mm. we went, well, okay, that's a really good structure. And um, there was a, n- a couple of other books around that time. I mean, Stick Control was a little bit more by George Fox. Yeah, yeah It was a little bit one. more
0: yeah, about sticking. Yeah.
1: Um, Syncopation by Ted Reed came a little bit later on. hmm um, But Cooper, had already already covered those elements and i went okay so who was really the originator that was the most popular book at that time um there was a premier book that they did in england as well which was similar and came out at the same time as the creeper book but um i think the creeper book was just had a bigger scope so those 14 key elements i went right bang start off with how to hold the stick how to read music fundamentals of music and that's what i've done in my book i've just followed those 14 key elements based on what Krupa's book was about. Mm. And I just adapted all the modern tutor books that I've studied from and taught from and put them in a condensed version in my book. And then what I've done, I created a website that a student, because most of the students who go home, I said, if you practice, and 90% of them go, nah, why not? I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't understand it. I didn't have anything to play along with. So I created the website. So you go home, after your lesson, you can go to the website, you can log in. And you can click on the lesson, and there it is in front of you. And mm. it's got an audio file, and it's got a video file, and it's got the PDF of the lesson that we'd covered that day. And then you can go click, and you can run through it. So did you book, see
0: did you see any real um, upshot in your students in their technique and playing once you well, started all of that? About only a small percentage. Yep, and um, that really
1: made me think about the motivational aspect of what we were doing, which was tricky because all great artists I think and all great players have this intrinsic motivation to want to be able to practice to mm. work mm. whether you're a writer whether you're a musician just motivating students they had so many distractions they were playing sport or oh, yeah they other extracurricular activities you know they and it made me delve into it further what like, why why aren't they following up you know put all this work in how come they're not following the instructions because they're so distracted by so many things. And it was only a small percentage that actually would complete their lessons each week and then come back and move on to the Mm. next lesson. So to get through the book, I've sort of done it in a foundational element. So there's a bunch of students that would have completed that and then they move into the next element, which is... Intermediate, because when you take all the tools and everything you've learned, you start creating songs and playing along with songs. Because you need those fundamentals, I think, to be able to understand what you're doing.
0: Did you find find that help when that?
1: Yeah, once I got to that stage, there was a little bit more interest. But I also had to. I also mentioned, and Crooper says the same thing. It's about playing along with music of popular bands of the day. I mean, you know, back then it was Benny Goodman. You know, today it can be Slipknot. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the essence is the same. If you're passionate about a band that you like and you want to work out what they're doing, you're going to sit in a room for hours and just work out whatever licks they are, whether it's Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Slipknot, or the Foo Fighters. When you when, um, you, when
0: you mention someone like Slipknot, when I was watching Van Halen yesterday, what do you think of um, his brother on drums? Alex know? Van Halen? Yeah.
1: I think he's the greatest drummer on the planet.
0: Really? Okay. <laughs> One of the
1: most underrated, but... Him and Eddie are a symbiote unit, you know, like they're Mm. they're so locked in together and they make everything that looks so simple and they put it in a three and a half minute song Mm. and it's just brilliant the way it's done. I think musically Van Halen are untouchable. Mm. I don't think there's ever been a band on the planet that's anywhere near that level, but to be able to do it in a popular musical manner and establish in a three and a half minute song and get their point across. Um, and David Lee Ross is a major element of that too. Well, that's um,
0: interesting. What we should do, we should always bring up an album then, um, or an artist every um, every session we have together. So, for example, course, yeah. uh, for example, uh, what springs to mind for me at the moment would be Paul Kozoff. Okay? So, do you know who Paul Kozoff is?
1: Yeah, from Bad Company, Free.
0: Yeah, uh, from Free, not Bad Company, from Free. Yeah. Had a lot of drug issues, and died very early at the age of twenty-six. Oh, yeah,
1: sorry. Yeah.
0: And um, uh, a unique style. Now, when when we 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 look at Paul Kozov playing, and then we look at Simon Kirk playing, was it? Was it Simon Kirk with Free and then Bad Company? Yeah, he was in Bad Bars, Company, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, he was yeah. in Free yeah. also. If you look at him, yeah. I was watching him in an older video, uh, a week or so ago, an old DVD I got, and he. There's nothing extraordinary about his playing. I don't think so, anyway. But when when you put it together, I think there is. <laughs> there in, well, see, that's interesting. That's what I I would like to. I kind of go, oh yeah, he's nothing special about him, but it works. And it works really well with Paul Kozov on guitar and that really laid-back style that Paul Kozov had. And Free weren't really a hard rock band, they were just a blues rhythm and blues band. And yeah. Um, yeah. I just find he just sits back in the beat and he doesn't do anything super complicated and it works. Then you got Paul Kozoff who does very laid-back lead breaks. They're long, they're sustained. I find listening to Paul Kozov today is as good as the day you know I was introduced to them in the 70s um, yeah, you know and I just kind of go wow imagine what he would have become you know of course I love bad company what Paul Rogers went on to do um, I, yeah. lo- I love bad company and yeah. but then I I love that first foreigner album that very first one I, I just love that record I mean those songs are just unbelievable but again yeah,
1: I saw Foreigner in 78 here at Festival Theatre and Chisel opened for them. Mm. And I, I mean, I really, I love Foreigner at that stage. Um, and they had the two-drummer thing going on, which was really, you know, interesting for a young drummer to see. Yep. But yep. Chisel blew them off the stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And I was really,
1: I felt bad for Foreigner because everyone was booing them Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> when yeah. they came out. I mean, about two or three songs in, I think that. Whole mindset changed, but you know, um, Chisel got an encore and Rossy came back on and did Georgia. It's like, how do you top that with a homegrown audience? It was Mm, just mm. amazing. Two really different types of bands, but Australian audiences didn't really go with the. Pomp of the Yank Axe either, so yeah, I um, wouldn't have thought it that was, that was the really a match
0: either, quite frankly.
1: No, but you know, it's, it was at WEA, I suppose, oh, the ones yeah. that would
0: have it would have been done yeah. that, you yeah, Frontier or whatever. But Someone, yeah, yeah, it was just interesting to see. There was no front, um, no Frontier back then, but anyway, um, it, it wasn't back yeah, then. It yeah, it would have been one of the older promoters, but you know, again, we know that. Yeah, you know, I, I try and say to artists all the time, don't even bother doing, you know, because there's this thing about. I'll do the gig because I'm getting in front of an audience. Well, if it's the yeah, wrong yeah. audience, you're wasting your bloody time. Uh, but it's like it.
1: coming back to Van Halen. I mean, they opened for Sabbath, and then they were just blowing Sabbath off stage every night, and mm. like they actually <laughs> stopped doing it for the sake of you know
0: was, Sabbath. Well, I was never not a, getting
1: trashed.
0: I was never a huge Black Sabbath fan after Sabbath, bloody Sabbath. Um, there was maybe one more uh, album there which I didn't mind, but.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like Sabotage and, you know, I like yeah. t- technical ecstasy. Yeah, I love, too, because they were working with Rick Wakeman at that stage, so there was a bit of a crossover with yeah, technology. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I found that they just got a bit later on a bit lazy and it's just all about noise and there wasn't any you – know, when Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, it's, it's got everything. I mean, it's 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 got the uh, the rhythm section happening – it's got the drumming happening, it's got the yeah, I think
1: yeah, Bill, Bill Ward's another underrated, you know, he's just a, such a great free drummer, you know. Mm. Got a very musical approach to what he does. Um, oh, absolutely. More, you know, I mean, it's compositional, but it's more in a classical sense than it is in a blues or a jazz sense, or, you know, but he's very jazz influenced as well. So, you know, there's a, so much swing in Sabbath and in the, the playing of that music, you know, which is like, which from Chisel, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's the same with Alex Van Halen, which, you know, and it even comes back to Free. They've got that swing. They've got that sit. And it just, it feels good when you listen to it.
0: You know, yeah. an album I want you to listen to between now and next week is um, an Italian band called PFM and the live album specifically called Cook. Okay. So that's it's okay. PFM and the album is called Cook. It's live. And, uh, I'll ask you some questions about that, just, you know, on, on Spotify or wherever you listen. Um, okay. Because like, the drummer there is just phenomenal. Uh, What's his name? Uh, oh, mate, I couldn't even tell you because it's one of yeah. those Italian names. It's, you know, as long as yeah, I mean, l- as these European bands,
1: European bands, have, I mean, I've been over there a few times and it's like, <laughs> it's a whole other level. You know, but, they, I mean, yeah.
0: they, they're, a, uh, they're a, well, they're a, not a jazz rock band. They're a fu- fusion rock band and okay. uh you know but the drumming is just sensational you know and you know the different styles is what kills me when i'm listening to all these different artists and the different okay. styles that come out and that's why i asked you about um van halen because i was looking yeah. at him yesterday and i thought well he doesn't do fast rolls and all that well he didn't look like he was doing them there um, alex yeah he was more about Using the whole kit and going right around the kit. Um, oh, and
1: depends what album you listen
0: to. Yeah, well, it could be. And you know, and I thought he was hanging back behind the beat, just laid back, and it just gave the rhythm. Section.
1: Yeah, but they, they they push and pull it so well, and they come in a 16th note earlier, a 16th late, or an eighth note earlier, an eighth note late, and they're just so onto it that you just you don't notice it. It sounds simple, but you go and try and play along to it, and it's just. Virtually impossible to get those changes. They're well, just well, unworldly, Those two.
0: Guys. Well, I brought up Paul Kozoff, So who are you going to bring up? Well, I, what as a drummer? Or? Uh, no, as a musician, I you could be a drummer, or it could be a bass player, or it could be a guitarist. But for me, I brought yeah, up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've yeah. just, I've, um, and I've gone back to I got a for a Christmas present. For my wife, um, Getty Leaf and Rush's book, My Ep and Life, which is a great read, and I've kind of started reading that because I think I can't go past Rush as well and Neil Peart um, and I've gone back I've got everything that Neil's released and published book wise and written and going back to reading that he's,
0: he's just so eloquent and Have you got the clever. DVD the Neil Peart DVD? I've got everything. Everything? Yeah we, re- Ever. we released <laughs> we released it at Liberator many years ago. Um, I've got it and I've never opened it. It's sitting there shrink wrapped. A work in progress? Um, I'll get it out and I'll out yeah, next, I think yeah, when I was
1: year. at your place, you showed it to me. Yeah, never yeah. opened. I really. mean, I've got, I've got it all when it came out. I was, yeah, when I was working at Brash's, we had a sheet music department, and I hunted high and low through every distributor that I could find just to get any publications that Rush had out, um, and some with Zappa stuff as well. You know, I mean. Right. So,
0: on that note, what do you think of Fly By Night as an album? I think it's great for the time. If you have a look at the year and the
1: time, yeah. you know, and the transition from the first album, yeah. after Rutsi, and yeah. then, you know, Neil comes in and just is just all over it. He's doing everything that you want to be able to play <laughs> but can't. I was amazed and when, I,
0: when I bought it, you know, at the time. Probably very much like second Montrose album, Paper Money. So I felt that you had the first Montrose album, which was really hard, and, you know, we, yep. it's kind of considered the quintessential rock album of all time, you know, with some of its foundations. But... Paper Money became a much more, what I say, more polished, a lot more polished, a lot more laid okay. back. And then I thought the same thing between Russia's first album and Fly By Night. And yep. I thought the first one was a bit rough and, you know, rough and hard, harder. And then Fly By Night was a lot more polished and had a lot more color and depth to it. Um, yeah,
1: see, so that's Neil. Neil's influence.
0: I mean, then those next two or three albums after that were just killers, you know. Twenty, twenty-one, twelve, you know.
1: Caress of Steel. Oh yeah, fantastic. um, You know, but the the record labels hated that apparently. Really? That that tour they were doing, they got put on the with lower level acts. They were touring, I think, with Nugent, who was, you know, not really. Mm. The level that he was at a couple of years before mm. with a Gonzo Double Live, you know, mm. and Rush were doing that. And they were just going, ah, oh, you know, this is pretty much the Down the Tubes tour, I think they called it. Then the record company said, you know, we need something with hits and, you know, we need singles. And they went in and they went well oh, and recorded
0: 2112.
1: Yeah, fantastic um, record. And yeah, I know, but the, you know, side two's like, oh no, side one isn't it? There's 2112, it's one theme song mm-hmm. on side. Mm-hmm. And the record company's going, what? And then it, it exploded because it's brilliant.
0: Yeah.
1: And I mean, I put up the 2112 day last week, which is the 21st of December in Australia. We used to celebrate that with my drum tech best friend, you know, every year. And you play twenty one twelve on twenty one twelve, and that was back in the eighties. And I see that through social media, a lot of people in the northern hemisphere have acknowledged it as a day for us in the southern hemisphere because our dates are different. So yeah, you um, know, I
0: mean, we we used to listen to All the World's Stage. Just that was that triple album was just unbelievable. That's what we'd go and sit down on a Sunday afternoon and listen to.
1: Yeah, it's it's frighteningly good. Yeah. <laughs> and um, lyrically, I, I still think you know it's very relevant to today. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, like the, all great writers, I mean, Neil wrote great content, and he was passionate about being able to play drums in that sense of being a good lyricist mm. and being a good compositional writer, be able to structure his drumming because words and drumming had the same sort of rhythm. So, did and he content.
0: did he write most of the lyrics? Did he? Yeah, all of them. Oh, really, Neil Pert? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I didn't know that. I mean, um, yeah. I think I might have said last week I don't really listen to the lyrics; I listen to the vocals. Yeah, I've
1: been thinking about that statement you said. I went. Mm. Quite a, a bold statement.
0: I listen to the, I listen to the vocal, not the lyric itself. It
1: Cause I think the message. Well, I mean, I listen to a lot of music that has. A, I think a good songwriting component in uh, it, whether it be Richie Clapton or whether it be you know Neil Peart. We'll um, see. See that, the,
0: the message for me, Rob, is the music itself, which the vocal is part of the music. That's the message to me. The message isn't what's in the lyric, and is it trying to tell a story or uh, give us a message on life or something. I'm I'm not interested. I'm interested in... Yeah,
1: but I think that's the, that's the element of the, the song is telling the story in a musical sense. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. how I, I imagine it. So.
0: Yeah, but I, that, that to me, and that's how I see it, but I don't listen to the lyric. Very rare that I, I listen to the lyric and get anything out of it at all. It's, to me, the blending of the music with the lyrics that's giving me the story of the song. So okay. you know that that's how I, uh, I see it, you know, and I don't ever get too hooked up in the in the actual lyric. Uh, interestingly, that you've you know you had to think about it and thought that's a bit weird, but you know. Yeah, that, I know. I, I just I, it's not weird. I mean, everyone's different. It's just
1: I found it challenging to try and understand how you perceive all that. So,
0: yeah, well, trying I mean, to
1: work it out. I don't think you know. I mean, I need mean to sit down and listen to an album with you. I think. In the same room over a glass of red, and go.
0: Yeah. All right, tell me what you're hearing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I do look i I do look for those hooks too. I look for a very catchy hook in a song. Um, it is very much for me. I look yeah. for the hook in there that I go, wow, that puts the uh, you know shivers up your spine. You know, it's not a lot of songs can do that. It's I'm I'm looking for that and the lyric that blends into that. Uh, you know, again, a very difficult thing to do. Right? It's not an easy thing, but... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when we were writing
1: all the soldiers' material and we were rehearsing, I just remember Gib sitting in the corner pouring over lyrics and writing and writing and writing and you know like and he had to get the right lyric and the right line for every you know every verse every chorus and everything we worked so hard at making it all shit together and over and over again you know it's just we went to great pains to make sure that our music was like that and so i when i listen to the lyrics you know i know what gibbs talking about within the song but um i know how hard he worked to make all those words
0: work. So when are oh. we going to hear some new music from you? Well, as I said, I've still got plenty there. I've just got a... I know you got plenty there. That's why I just, I'm yeah. going to keep pressing it every week. When are we going to yeah, hear yeah, some new yeah. music from you? Yeah, I'm just keeping you hungry for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and we can keep talking about it. I, I thought think. you'd gotten a few guys that you thought in Adelaide that, you know, you could work with and do it. And, um, no, I have, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that conversation – I had that conversation with Gib last week again. So, yeah. yeah it's still I got, going on. Well, I got um, – uh, there's a new Deep S- Deep South song coming out, which is just being finished as we speak. Um, there's a new Radio KSG song, which is happening. That's slowing down a bit, that, one, that project, though. Uh, and okay. That, and that's happening. And we've just started a new project with Simon Chainsaw and um, – and you know, Simon Chainsaw. Saw, yeah, or do you remember the Vanilla Chainsaws? I do. Yeah, well, this is Simon Chainsaw, is the singer from the Vanilla Chainsaws, mm-hmm. right? So there he's got know. about um, 10 or 15 albums out through us. And, well, that's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of records there. And we've um, parted, partnered up with him, so we've just finished a track there, very much kind of cruelly sea kind of song. And, okay. Um, so there's I've got quite a lot coming out. And as I often say to people uh, who are listening, it's about collabing and collaborating and getting our artists to collaborate and to continue putting out new music because, you know, we're getting older and older and the time just slips away. And then, you know, it just gets to a point where I find some of our artists.
1: As Max Merritt said, huh?
0: Yeah, they just don't do it. And it's like you've got the opportunity to do, do it now. So if you've got any creative in you, well, don't hold back, put it out. And that's why I keep hounding you, you know. I've got
1: got way too much.
0: And your drumming talent needs to be explored. I mean, there's so much you could do, you know, whether it be the band revolves around the drumming or something like that, because, you know, you've got the talent there to do it. So why not? Well, thanks. (laughs) Well, why not explore that? Well, I have. Well, you may have, but that's for you, but not for me because I haven't heard any of it. And neither is yeah, any, well, I'll, neither, I'll, neither is anybody I'll, else, mate. I'll get to it. Well, you know, maybe I should listen to the album, the E P and the new Langley album. But. Yeah, well, you know, you, yeah, you look, you you I think I think if you start and you get a song done with a bunch of guys, yeah, I think it rolls on. Because you've been re releasing older stuff, I really hang it out to get some new stuff from you. And that's why I'll keep hanging it on you to go, Well, when are we getting some new material? So <laughs> you, know, you know, but you know, you've, if you've got the guys available to do it, do it and do, do it now, you know. I, I,
1: yeah, no, I mean, you know, a couple of the guys have been on tour so it's trying to get the same people all in the same room. Um, well, you but, know, yeah, inter- well, see, in- mm-hmm.
0: interesting about that, so you go get them in the same room whereas I'm working with people from all around the world and none of us are in the same room.
1: now. Yeah, and you're doing it all online. Yeah, yeah. I get that now, well. it, it can
0: be difficult because, you know, there is no doubt about... Supergroups, when they get together, not to wear any supergroups, but when you hear a supergroup, it usually doesn't sound too good because you can tell that they're not a cohesive unit and they've been playing together for a long time and therefore, you know, what's that Sammy Hagar chicken foot? You know chicken foot? Is oh, it? they're sensational. Yeah, you—you you, well, you, I, look, I put it out, right, when I deliberated, but maybe sensational as musicians. I didn't think there was any sensational songs. It was one or two. Because I felt, really? yeah, I felt that you could feel the songs weren't cohesive. These guys hadn't been playing together all the time for 10 years or whatever it may be. So it can be difficult, in my opinion, when you know you, you've got people in Spain or in the UK or in Sydney and then it all comes together. So you don't get what you're talking about get some guys into a room and you can get a completely different feel. But it does give you the freedom to work with many people and many different styles, you know. And uh, yeah,
1: because I'm you know, Satriani, wish a guitar player from Chico, mm, that's and right.
0: Chad Smith, yeah. who's the
1: drummer yeah. from the Chili's, and yeah. Michael Anthony is just
0: yeah, Fantastic. has
1: the most incredible voice
0: and. In- fantastic bass player. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, Sammy's
1: a brilliant guitarist in his own right and an incredible singer. Absolutely. Um, but I must say, I, to I,
0: you, Chicken Foot didn't take off. I didn't sell a lot of DVDs. I yeah, but, you know. I, that tells you the story.
1: I think Learned to Fall is an incredible track off that album and so is My Kind of Girl. You know, like there, were, the,
0: there was one or two songs there which were really good, but the rest of them to me were just a bunch of guys who are really good musos playing. That's, that, yeah. that's how I hear it, you know. And know. the public didn't buy it either because they weren't a hit. Yeah, I don't know, was it? Yeah, no. Nah, nah. Well, they weren't a hit, that's for sure, because it, they would have continued it on a big way. Yeah, but, I mean, Sammy doesn't play down at Cabo Waba. I mean, that's always packed out. You can't even get into those gigs. So. But that's him. But that's him. Yeah. And, no, but no, it's, that's it's, him. It's... He, he can do gigs. Hold oh, Yeah, meet. and I mean, he's he playing with can... Jason Bonham. And... Yeah, he can do gigs. You know, he can continue to do gigs any time he wants. But with these kind of supergroups, a different thing altogether. Yeah. Very few. I mean, remember the power station um, or the firm with David Bowie. Remember the firm? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that was another classic. Page, yeah, and, yeah, that was another yeah. classic, yeah. which was really ordinary.
1: Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, I don't know whether it's psychologically. I'll go out on a limb and say psychologically, you're dealing with you know a preconceived idea of you know Page is Led Zeppelin and um, you know Chad Smith is the Chili Peppers and Sammy Hagar is Montrose, You know, like yeah. there's a lot of people trying to get through the psychology of what are they doing to it? They're, they're messing with the vision that they had of the band that they like in the first place. So that's yeah. maybe why a lot of people don't like what's coming out because they're expecting. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, mean? Um, I, mean I think I bought it up last week, a new playlist called Deep South uh, Blues with a twist. And yeah, I yeah. encourage everybody to have a listen to that. And I'm um, just... I've been listening to it all week. There's some crazy stuff in in there. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff in there, people I've never heard of, Rob. You know, I just kind of go, "What? where did these guys come from? And you read a bit about them, you know, and who they are and where they're from. Um, But, you know, I just kind of go, wow. It's so exciting when I discover something like that because I I didn't know any of them. I discovered them, you know, starting that playlist, which I've got to start adding a few more to. But it just blew me away and I was so excited going, wow, there's just, these bands are fantastic and they're so different too, you know, in their own little way. And so it gives me so much confidence that we've got so much more coming, you know, and happening out there. Uh, But they're not, you know, because we have a 100,000 songs a day released or whatever it may be, these things get, you know, they just get lost in the wash.
1: Uh, but- See that's another thing that Clapton refers to in his book. You know how there's just there's too much content and there's not enough listeners anymore. And I
0: thought that was really um, really poignant. But how, how do you say that? But how do you say that there's too much content? But every but it's just- well, I, I'm trying to. I'm not paraphrasing there. It's just
1: my version of what I read him saying. But that's like there's so much music out there that, and you know, he questions whether there's as many listeners out there now as there is music. And I think that was a really interesting thing to pull
0: up. Well, I reckon there's more listeners out there now, but what we've got to be careful about is the intergenerational tagging by artists like that who are not going to get a young audience. So, And what we do know from statistics, Rob, and I wonder whether you got this when you did your PhD um, because I got this from um, my radio, close radio compatriots, they know mm-hmm. between the ages of 17 and 23, you will develop your artists and sounds that you like that will endure you for the rest of your life. So if I, between the ages of 17 and 23, got into Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac are my, you know, or Led Zeppelin, they are my benchmark for the rest of my life, you know, and I go, oh, yeah, mate, nothing's like as good as them, you know. Um, this is just trash. I don't think it is. You know, and... That's statistical. They found that out statistically that between those ages people formulate their music style and their likes and that will endure them for the rest of their life. So trying to change them at the age of 40, you're not going to do it and that is a real radio thing and they've done a lot of studies yeah, I'm, on this. Yeah, you
1: know, that's probably great data but you know, I'd like to, I suppose there's an argument against that whether that even is true but... Well, you know, we because what, you know you're coming from radio stations that want to promote what they want to promote. Which is well,
0: they they want they want you to listen. There's no doubt they want you to listen. Well, play some decent to av- music. They want to advertise. <laughs> See, and we've got to be careful. You've got to be very careful how you say that because you know, play some yeah, decent decent music. That goes to the core of what they're saying. If the next generation of seventeen or 23s have developed their you know their style. Uh, or their, their bands that they like. And then the next generation, because we've had another three or four between there since when I started. And so, you know, when you say that, you're feeding straight into that category. Oh, can I play some decent music? What do you consider decent music? Oh, Led Zeppelin or, I don't know, Alex uh, uh, Van Halen. Well, my kids don't even know who Van Halen is. They don't, don't, don't know who it is, you know, who the band is. Mm. you got to be very That's careful. You've got to be very careful how you say that and, and go, well... Hold on. Radio wants you to listen because they want to advertise on there, and that's what's changing. And that's when uh, preferences for music are formulated in the mind of the human being. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just a little bit of Clapton, Richard Clapton's. Hmm brilliant here he goes
1: for about the past 20 years now this is written in 2015 so um, it'll be 30 years now but for about the past 20 years music has lapsed into a homogenised and rather uninteresting state because the system that dictates that we will and what we will and won't hear is based on false principles what music is fine unless it's taken too seriously but it's about as satisfying as a Big Mac it's okay while you're eating it but it has no lasting nutritional value and therefore is ultimately unsatisfying and you feel like something afterwards. This well, probably explains why many reunion tours by pop stars in the past fail. You know, I think that's kind of sums it up because there just doesn't seem to be a lot of
0: decent content. In I just can't agree with you on that. Is it? I just yeah, I can not agree with that. It's just, just you know my, you know if uh, I don't know, I suppose if I talk about my daughter, she's out there singing some song I've never heard about. Right? It doesn't sound too good to me. Rob, Right? I don't like the song because it's one of those nothing songs. And she is singing to the song word for word. And I've said this occasionally to her, how do you know yeah, the I words know. of that awful song? She goes, it's not an awful song, Dad. And so that's getting to the crux of what I'm saying is they value a different style. And you and Richard Clapton going, well, you know, is it, is it good music or whatever? Well, mate, that's because they don't think your music's any good, Richard, because... You had your big hits in the 70s, and they don't value that style. They value the, I call it the throwaway style of the 2000s, right? Those, those songs Yeah, but that's that- what it is.
1: You know, that, that's the point that he's making. It is throwaway. There's no depth to it, you know. And as you said here, I need the challenge and stimulation of my peer at pushing the envelope and coming from left of centre with bold new ideas that challenge the boundaries of music. You know, I mean, that's a great principle to live by, I think, and just today, uh, evidence
0: I, I, try and be, I try and be more subjective in that, yeah, I look at my little yeah. thing here and I've got Backstreet Crawler in there, which is Paul Kozoff, um, you know, Craig Orton and the Hornets, and I, you know, these kind of bands in there. I know that they're just not going to resonate with a, I suppose, a young female audience or whatever. Even some of the young male audience, are just it's just too bluesy, too rocky, everything about it. Uh, so, you know, how do, narrowing into that audience... And pulling away from what society has conditioned these kids into listening to, and what is good. So let's say I don't know, I don't know. I, I might use Celine Dion, but she's too old yeah. now. But there's these, you know, these new artists who, are, who there, there, there doesn't seem to be any structure in the song. It's just a song, and they're singing it, and it's a number one smash with 26 million streams. I mean, you know, I I cannot. Yeah, but that's what it's the commercial consumerist end of it, isn't it? Well, it is. I find it so difficult to, well, it's to connect. It's Mac of music. Yeah, I, I find it so <laughs> difficult to connect with and to see the value in the song and how it got 26 million streams. I find it really difficult. And these are the things I look at each day with everything we do in music yeah. here uh, and trying to, you know, go, well, you know, I mean, we've got one band, Sideshow Annie, you know, we were looking at it the other day and suddenly they had, I don't know, 8,000 streams on a song. But what had happened was uh, the Spotify algorithmic playlist had pushed it and suddenly it had gotten, you know, 8,000 streams. And I'm trying to dig down. I go, who's the audience here? I couldn't get it, you know. This is what they don't give you, Rob. You can't yeah, you, were get, that last yeah week. you can't get. It gets to a point. They go, it's the Spotify algorithmic playlist." Then they'll give you some age brackets and stuff. But I need to know specifically where and how. And you can't get it because if you could, you could directly go to those people. It is so difficult and it's really frustrating. But there are more things to delve into. Yeah. To help people, uh, you know, I think we. We probably should spend a session on uh, Spotify for artists and look yeah. in there, go through it, you know, kind of explore what the artist needs to, um, you know, uh, get out of it. And again, you go, I go through that. And I find it complicated. There's, you know, some people get ah there's a lot, but there is a lot in there, and you've got to try and make heads or tails. Then you've got to try and take that back to campaigns in Meta or YouTube or Google. And utilise that data. That's really hard, Rob. Really difficult. You know, you'd virtually need spreadsheets, and you need to be cross correlating yeah, yeah, your yeah. data and going right. You know, it's like trying to go. Well, my my th- my song um, is very much like the Huda Gurus. Well, when I go to Google and I say, match it to anything that people that like Huda Gurus, Huda Gurus aren't big enough. It doesn't come up with them. If I put Eric Clapton yeah, but, in, it comes
1: yeah, up. Yeah, but I mean, that, that, that's the nature of how culturally it's so out of touch, because you know, in Australian culture, Hoodoo uh, Gurus are, you know, huge, but you're watering down Australian culture by making it international mm. in a sense of mm. the, the search bot. Mm. And that's, you know, I, because and, and, and that's isolationism. What, and, and,
0: and they would have that data that you could go, no, just give me Hoodoo Gurus in Australia, right? And it would come up very high, but they don't let, they don't yeah. allow you to do that,
1: right? Yeah, but see, that, that's that's denying cultural significance, I think. That's a really dangerous pathway to go down. Um, I don't know whether you saw the Australian business page today. There's an article by Jared Lynch called Act Now on AIS threat to creativity. which Is this in The Australian? Today, yeah.
0: Okay, no, because I read The Australian back to back. Yeah, it's in no, the
1: business section. And it's, yeah, it's... Basically, federal government is treating reigning in big tech and artificial intelligence like a low priority, threatening to damage society by abolishing any incentive to produce art and other creative content, former competition watch, dog, chair, rod, sims, warned. So even that byline, you know, from the title, it's like, that's a concern, and then you go forward and you're bringing this up, you know, and it's Google.
0: Well, the AI in Google and Meta is just running havoc. At the moment.
1: Yeah, but apparently it's not regulated in Australia, whereas it's regulated in Europe and it's regulated in the UK. And they're trying to introduce legislation here, but the Australian government doesn't really
0: want to I, I fi- I find give it a high priority. I find, find all governments here, complete lack, whether it be Labour or Liberal, forget all the minus parties, Labour or Liberal <laughs> is their lack of public service and serving us, the public. It doesn't exist.
1: It's Which a, is what they're employed to do. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I just find, you know, it's they all pander to their particular groups, uh, whether it be Labor yep. with the unions or the Liberals, as they used to kind of say, you know, I suppose. They'd say or they're pandering business. to Google. Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> and, but, you know, where's the public service? And getting right back to how you just started that, how come they're not legislating on that? and And really helping us to get ahead. And everything is about... Oh no, we need to decentralise. We don't. We all we do is we we sit here and talk, you know, but we don't actually run any of that, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, it's, it's a concern for the future. There's no doubt. I about think it. so.
1: Yeah, mm. but you know, even coming back to your point about you know um, when you're searching who gurus, I mean, culturally, you know, that's really important Australian culture that yeah. I think we're we're losing contact with, you know, like when I talk about Richard Clapton, we've talked about the Angels, we've talked about Cold Chisel. You know, they're, they're major players. And, you know, if you did the same thing and searched that on an international level, they're probably not. But culturally in Australia, they're huge. So I don't really you know, want us you, to you lose.
0: Know, well, you know, I saw Joe Camilleri in the Black Sorrows, their big hit, whatever it was called. I was looking at the other day because, you know, we had Jeff Burston here and yep. it, had, it had turned over 26.5 million streams. That one song, the amount of money in that is phenomenal. Yeah, it depends whether he had a deal, whether he's deal, I think they were with EMI at the time. Um, yeah. It's whether they had a deal where this is all come back to them and whatever. But 26 and a half million streams is worth huge money, all right? Don't believe anything with Taylor Swift and everybody else. So, you know, it it's huge bucks, And so that, to me, if that's achievable, I should be able to put him, Joe Camilleri, in the back sorrows, and it should come up and say, yes, I can tag those people and, you know, and I can try and advertise to them. But as you just said, very difficult because we're on the world stage now and they mean nothing on the world stage. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough for today. Um,
1: yeah, sorry, my dog's starting to freak yeah. out because the thunder's happening here now.
0: Uh, that's all right. Yeah, we had it the other day. All right, well, yeah. um, we'll get together next week. Good talking to that's you again, good. Rob. Yeah, you too, Vince. Thank all you right, very mate. Nice. I think I'll pick out a few of my vinyls out of my collection and uh, talk to you about a few of those next week, all right? Yeah, that'd be
1: great. All right, I mate. Look forward to
0: it. See you. Okay, bye. See ya. Bye. If you enjoyed that, there's more. Just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day folks, Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers, with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> it's a stupid loaded <laughs> question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers, with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' maltese. It's You're a eating a of, Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.